You are Locked On Mets, your daily New York Mets podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Hello to all you amazing Mets fans. You're listening to Locked On Mets, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Thank you for making Locked On Mets your first listen every day. Locked On Mets is free and available on all platforms, including YouTube. So all day today, I have been going back and forth with people on Twitter talking about the Edwin Diaz trade. Because I'm sick of people telling me the Mets won the Edwin Diaz trade. And I'm going to talk about why in the first segment today. In the second segment, we'll talk about the Mets' loss against the Braves. Once again, they lose the second game in the series, but David Peterson was really good. So in the third segment, after I recap that game a little bit, I really want to dive into his season and how his slider has changed everything compared to last year, and that's why you've seen such a great first half of the season for the Mets' left-handed starter. Before we get to any of that, though, I'm your host, Ryan Ficklestein. If you want to find any of my work, follow me on Twitter, at FicklesteinRyan can also find some of my writing at JustBaseball.com, where I work as the managing editor. Now, throughout the day-to-day, I've been going back and forth with people because I tweeted out this thread, and, you know, there's a lot of people who have a lot of opinions on it, and I get it, and I, I wanted to go through it a little bit because I thought this was a really interesting topic to talk about on the show, and I know we touched on it a little bit yesterday when I mentioned Robinson Cano, but here is just the thread that I posted. I just want to read it first, right? So I said... Since everyone is saying they won the Edwin Diaz trade again, figured I should make this clear for those of you who aren't familiar with the full context of the deal and its impact on the Mets. If they trade Jared Kelenic and Justin Dunn straight up for Edwin Diaz, trade was a massive win. But because they took on Cano's money, the Mets were unable to re-sign Zach Wheeler the following offseason. And this offseason, because of Cano being owed $20-plus million, they didn't go out and sign a DH like Kyle Schwarber. Diaz is having a remarkable season for the Mets. It deserves everyone's praise. Jeff Wilpon and Bertie Van Wagen and the architects of the worst offseason in franchise history, or at least one of the worst offseasons, deserve absolutely no credit whatsoever. Stop saying they won the trade. So that was the thread I put out there. And, and granted, I understand why there's now this windfall of a narrative where everyone's saying, hey, the Mets won the trade because here's Jared Kalanick, who's had an awful start to his big league career. He's in the minor leagues. He hasn't done well. Justin Dunn has not been traded multiple times. You say, yeah. That's won the deal. And you look at Diaz's numbers this year. He's the best closer in baseball, most dominant at least. You look at his strikeout per nine of 18.08. He's striking out two batters per every inning that he goes out there. And his strikeout rate, he's striking out 51.4% of the batters he faces. Unbelievable. Nine for 19 for 22 in save opportunities, 1.73 ERA. There's no quibbling on my part about how good Edwin Diaz is. But I get frustrated while we have to... Look at all of it. It has to just be an all-encompassing thing. Either you win a trade or you lose a trade. You don't look at the gray areas in between. And what annoys me is when you say the Mets won the trade, you're not giving credit to to Steve Cohen's Mets and and, and to the current regime of Billy Epler and everything going on with this current ball club. You're giving credit to Jeff Wilpon, first and foremost. Because the entire offseason plan stemmed from Jeff Wilpon knowing the team was going to be sold in a couple of years. Wanting to win with the best pitcher on the planet in Jacob DeGrom, hiring his agent to be the GM, right? 
making sure they got a contract extension for DeGrom was part of the long plan there. On top of that, what did they do? Did they spend in the short term? Yeah, you thought so because they signed Jed Lowry and Wilson Ramos and they took on the, the contract of Fino. But really, again, as I point out so many times, they trade Jay Bruce and Anthony Swarzak in that deal so that they actually saved money on the Edwin Diaz-Robinson-Cano trade. And they almost included Jeff McNeil in that package. They don't know what they were doing at all. And so now we go to back to this revisionist history that they won the trade. Listen, if the Mets shopped Jared Kelenic at that point in time, you know the type of players they could have acquired? <laughs> Think about the guys that were moved. Jared Kelenic it was a better prospect at that time than anything the Red Sox got back from Mookie Betts. Think about that. Think about what Mookie Betts would look like in the Mets outfield right now. <laughs> Love Starlin Marte. He's no Mookie Betts. They could have had JT Real Muto. How much have you liked James McCann behind the plate uh, in the last couple years? And Wilson Ramos for, for the couple years prior. Could have had JT Real Muto for Edwin Diaz. The, the list goes on and on. To trade a prospect of that caliber for a reliever was not a good move. Now it's worked out. Because now we're armed with the hindsight of what Kalanick has done. But it drives me nuts that we want to suddenly call it a win of a trade because all you want to focus on is, hey, they won because they got the great the great closer. Look what he's doing now. And again, this is not taking away from Diaz. This is not taking away from the current Mets. This is this idea that we have to just say that because Diaz is pitching great and Kalanick isn't good, it's a win of a trade, removing all of the context and then by saying it's a win of the trade, you are putting a feather in the cap of Brody Van Wagenen, who honestly had no idea what he was doing as an executive. I mean, do you want me to go on and on? You trade prospects for Keon Broxton and Jake Marisnik, center fielders that you could have got just signing someone off the scrap heap, right? Um, you saw what the Mets did last year with Kevin Pillar. At least that was better than trading prospects for a guy. And really, you look at what they've gotten out of Jane Kowski this year, it's better than anything they got out of, you know, Broxton or Marisnik, really. And they didn't trade any prospects for Jane Kowski. They did what any smart team does. You sign a player on a minor league deal. A fast guy that can play defense. Not that hard. You talk about Jed Lowry, who basically never played for the Mets. You talk about Wilson Ramos, who couldn't catch anymore, and they signed him to be their catcher um, and had one good season where basically – he just had ridiculous uh, you know, success with the bases loaded. Pull the bases loaded numbers out. He was not good in 2019. You talk about the trade for 2019. Edwin Diaz was bad the first year they signed him. If he was what he was this year, the Mets are a playoff team, and you look at their rotation, stack it up against what the Nationals had that year that won a World Series. The Mets could have won a World Series if Diaz did his job in 2019. And Cano was bad, and then he got suspended. <laughs> so... I just cannot stand. It grinds my gears when someone wants to tell me that Brody Van Wagen and Jeff Wilpon won that trade. Again, a trade where they were considering including Jeff McNeil in it. It's frustrating because, again, if you want to strip Swarzak and Bruce from that trade and strip Robinson Cano from it and just talk prospects, yeah, they won that trade. And it would have been a trade that at the time they would have lost considering what else they could have gotten. For Edwin Diaz, but you would look back at it now and say, yeah, it's a win. But I can't stop in my head thinking about the fact that, you know, 12 months later, Zach Wheeler got a contract for pretty much the exact same amount of money per year as Cano was making for a division rival and then went on to be a runner up in the Cy Young in 2021. I can't stop thinking about the fact that Kyle Schwarber is almost at 30 home runs right now for the Phillies when the Mets 
could not sign a DH this offseason because they had Cano in the books, and they figured, hey, he could probably give us something as our DH. We're not going to just cut him for nothing and swallow the money. That's not Cohen's fault. He did enough around you know, what the Mets have by getting Marte and Escobar and Canna that they thought they did enough offensively. But now you look at this team struggling so much, and what would a Schwarber mean to this team? What would it have meant to the Mets if they didn't have Cano in the books and they went in a completely different direction? Who knows what else they could have gotten? You know, who knows if maybe that's the difference and they went out and signed Chris Bryant. Now, Bryant's been hurt this year. We all know that I'm not the biggest fan of Chris Bryant based on the defense and the length of the deal that he got, but he certainly would be giving the Mets a hell of a lot more production in the second half than what they're getting from their DHs. I'll tell you that much. So, again, I I hate to continue to harp on this, and I promise this is the last time that I'm going to talk the Edwin Diaz-Robinson-Cano trade for the remainder of the year. I'll say that right now. Outside of a passing mention, I'm not going to do a full segment on it again. But I cannot stand by anymore and, and get that take and see it on my time all the, night, all the time and, and not say something. The Mets won the Edwin Diaz trade. They didn't. Edwin Diaz is awesome. Just tweet that. Appreciate what you're watching. Appreciate that for this season, Diaz is incredible. And he was pretty solid last year. And he was really good in 2020. And Ultimately, that piece of the trade worked. But to, to suddenly strip away everything I just mentioned, all of the mistakes of the last regime, what the last you know, three seasons have been like as a Mets fan, you had 2019 where they were this close, and the two pieces that I still think were the biggest hindrance for them actually making a playoff run this year were the guys that got in that trade. You had the 2020 season where that same regime just had a disaster top to bottom. They signed Michael Walker and Rick Porcello because in their minds, that was a better uh, short-term allocation of money as opposed to Zach Wheeler. And they also, at that point, were feeling the full weight of Robinson Cano on the payroll because they didn't offset the salary like they did in that one year by sending out expiring contracts in Bruce and Swarzak. Okay? Again... That's it for me on this. We're going to talk about the game now. I, I felt like this was almost a better way to open the show than, than to talk about the Braves getting one against the Mets, but we do have to discuss it. The Braves found a way to beat the Mets, couple home runs, and the Mets offense continues to struggle. I'm going to talk about that game in just a minute, but if you're ready to pop the question or if you're celebrating a milestone moment, find jewelry as unique as her with the modern convenience of online shopping at BlueNile.com. You can build the engagement ring of her dream. Because Blue Nile has the simple tools that let you choose the diamond shape, the size, the clarity, as well as the setting style. Blue Nile's bench jewelers will then handcraft her perfect engagement ring. Each ring is one of a kind, so you can celebrate life's special moments with fine jewelry. Blue Nile's jewelry experts on hand 24-7, available via phone or chat, to help you find a memorable piece at every budget. Make your moment sparkle with jewelry from BlueNile.com, and Locked On Mess listeners get $50 off purchases of $500 or more. This podcast exclusive includes engagement. So use the code locked on again. That's code locked on. Plus, every order is insured, ships free, and arrives in discreet packaging that won't give away what's inside. Shop stress free and find your forever peace by going to bluenow.com today. David Peterson was really good for the Mets on Tuesday night. He didn't get a win. He got a tough loss, but he went five and a third. He walked three, gave up two hits, had nine strikeouts. This guy has, if I'm not mistaken, 26 strikeouts in his last three starts. It's incredible to see someone that we thought was just kind of a ground ball pitcher 
sort of ascend a little bit and be a strikeout guy. Last year, his strikeout per nine was over nine. This year it is as well. But the difference is last year he was getting hit really hard. So maybe that's just a matter of, hey, you're pitching in a lot of jams. You need strikeouts to try to get out of it. And unfortunately, last year he wasn't getting out of those jams. This year, he's a different pitcher. And you saw in this game, you know, he at one point retires 14 out of 15 batters. That streak ends. Um, he had one walk that was the one base runner in that span. And then he walks another batter, Dansby Swanson, in the sixth inning after getting the first out via strikeout. And if you look at the pitch tracks, right, should have had two strikeouts to start that inning. Should have had his 10th punch out, which would have been what? Would have been two strike two uh, starts in a row with 10 strikeouts? Can't remember if he had the 10 strikeout performance against the Rangers or if that – and I think that was the, the Rangers start, if I'm not mistaken. Um, the one before – his last time out, I believe he had double digit strikeouts. This one, um, you know, would have been two out of three. But regardless, you know, if he gets that strikeout there, it's a completely different game for him. And obviously, you know, you don't know how everything goes out. You can't say that he definitely does not give up a home run to Matt Olson. But for one, uh, and actually not have it looked up. Yes. So Rangers, 10 strikeouts um, against the Reds. He had the seven strikeouts. So uh, again, the strikeouts have been impressive, but. Had he got that call, you're looking at two outs, nobody on. He can stay in the windup going up against Matt Olson there. Um, you know, be a lot more calm without a runner on base. He got into a full count against Olson. Olson's a good hitter, almost took him deep twice. You know, he had one down the line that would have been, I guess, just um foul, but also would have been just shy of the homer, would have been like a double that would have driven in Swanson. Then he goes dead central and takes Peterson Yard. No shame in it. He was past 100 pitches. We don't see him get. Um, asked to go that deep in the game. So it's interesting to see Buck trust him that way. And he earned it. He earned the ability to win or lose that game. And unfortunately he lost it, but there's no knock on him. I want to talk about his slider a little bit more in the next segment and how that really has been a pitch that has kind of changed who he is this season. But before we get into that, we'll talk about the rest of this game here. And honestly, whatever Peterson did became a moot point when Seth Lugo went out there for a second inning of work and he gave up a two run Homer. And that was the ball game four to one Mets lose. They did a good job early in that game against Spencer Strider. I really think they did. Um, you're talking about a great pitcher who is in the conversation as a rookie of the year. Um, they knocked him out in the fifth at 103 pitches. Uh, there was traffic every single inning against Strider. They had really good at-bats. They grinded. He's a good pitcher, though, so he worked his way around it. And then the Braves' bullpen is one of the best bullpens in baseball, and they showed it. So as much as we're going to knock the Mets offensively because, hey, they're not hitting right now, and it's a big problem. You got Travis Jankowski and Ender Inciarte on the same roster. Says it all, really, and you're still dealing with the fact that Marte likely misses the remainder of this series, hopefully is back in Chicago. McNeil rejoins the team in Chicago off paternity, so that's going to give the lineup you know, two big boosts. But without them, this lineup is really struggling, and it was already struggling before the two of them left. You got Mark Vientos waiting in the wings. I got to mention him every show until he gets called up, so... Still don't know what's going on there, but this lineup just hasn't been able to figure it out. They need to get to this break. And I think the best part about Scherzer getting that win on uh, Monday night is that now you lose Chris Bassett versus Charlie Morton, that final game of this series on the day game here. It is what it is. You have a half game lead. Hopefully you win three or four against the Cubs, and that's enough to take a lead or at least bare minimum um, a tie going into the break. Let me see if the Braves – are off on Thursday because um, that would be, let's see. No, they do play. So they have a four-game series as well. So the Braves will go into the break having played one more game than the Mets. So 
We'll see what happens. We'll see what happens there. Um, you know, at this point, yeah, there's a chance that the Mets won't be in first place by the time you get to the all-star break. But if you win on Wednesday, then you have a pretty good shot uh, to maintain that lead. And this is a team that I think just needs to get to that break. They have to be at that point where they can just reset a little bit. You're going to get DeGrom on the other side. That's going to be a big lift. But there's clearly a need in the bullpen that the Mets have to address. Um, and they got to address the DH spot, whether it's calling up Vientos or making a trade. But in the next segment, what I want to do to close out the show is focus in on David Peterson a little bit more. He's been an absolute revelation this season, and I want to go through what has changed for him, and it really has been that slider. But first, BetOnline.net is your number one source for all of your betting needs and sports info. Final latest sports developments, league reviews, and news as BetOnline is your continuing source for all of your sports waging information, including live betting, esports, and scores. BetOnline is the fastest and easiest way to check in on all your favorite sports and events, including MMA, boxing, and golf. Also, make sure you bet on Pete Alonso to win the home run derby because we all know that is as close to a lock as you're going to get in sports betting. Head to the website today or use your mobile device to learn more about the trends in the action. Bet online where the game starts. If I told you on opening day that David Peterson would carry a 3-4-8 ERA into the All-Star break, you probably would have said, what is that, three starts? No. The guy's been in the rotation almost all year. 14 games pitched, 12 starts. He's now thrown 67 in the third innings pitched, has 76 strikeouts, a 1.25 whip. He's 5-2. and two. To have that production from David Peterson, it has been game-changing. As much as we talked about Tyler Miguel in the first month of the season, to me, out of sight, out of mind, maybe, but Peterson is rising above the hierarchy when it comes to this rotation. He's been amazing, man. I mean, you're talking about a former first-round pick, figuring it out. And to have a left-handed starter like Peterson under control, cheap, in a rotation that has Max Scherzer making $43-plus million, could potentially have Jacob DeGrom making the same next year if he's re-signed. Not to mention, what else you have to do? Are you going to bring back a Bassett? Are you going to bring back a Carrasco? Taiwan Walker? A lot of decisions to make, and they're all expensive ones. To have a guy like David Peterson that you just don't really have to worry about that can go out and be a starter for you and, and give you quality outing after quality outing, it's huge. And the big thing and the big difference, if you want to compare this year to last year, it's the slider. Last year, batters hit 299 with a 552 slugging percentage against his slider. With percentage on that pitch, 37.2, not bad. Not bad. Put away percentage, 27.2. Also not bad. This year, though, that slider, batters are hitting 154 against that pitch. You look at the slugging percentage against his slider, 295. So that right there is basically cutting those numbers in half from last year. The whiff percentage to me is the big one, though. So again, last year, whiff percentage of 37.2. This year, the whiff percentage is at 48.4%. Batters are whiffing nearly half the time they swing at his slider. And as a put-away pitch for strikeouts, he's nearly at 37% of the time. So that's a massive difference. Now, you look at the pitch. What changed? Well, is it just location? What's going on here? Well, for all of his offerings, he's throwing them harder, but particularly the slider, much faster than last year. He was averaging 82.1 miles per hour on the slider in 2021. This year, 84.1. So you add two miles per hour on that slider, and you also look at the break. It's breaking two inches less vertically. 
and half an inch less horizontally. Now you say, don't you want more break? Here's the difference. It's a tighter breaking pitch because he's throwing in harder and the spin rate is up a tick as well. So it's coming in harder. And what that does for hitters is it makes it harder to identify. They don't realize it's a slider until it's fallen off the table. So it's breaking a little bit later because he's throwing it just that much harder with, with just that little extra spin to it. And it's a tighter spin, tighter rotation. It's causing that pitch to be really tough to pick up. And guys can't square it up for one. That's why the batting average is cut in half and the slugging percentage almost cut in half as well. But also they're swinging through it allowing him to rack up the strikeouts. If you look at the heat map on his slider and you look at left-handed batters, he's either dotting that pitch on the outside corner or he's burying it. There's two spots in the heat map, either on the corner or buried. That's showing you that he has that pitch locked in location-wise. Now against righties, you're talking about inside, right? Freezing them and get them on the corner or burying it where they're going to swing through it. So, so that's what he's doing here with that pitch. And by being able to throw it for a strike, and then also be able to bury it, that keeps batters guessing where they're not sure if, oh, this one's going to come on the corner. Oh, this is a sweeper that I can't get to. So that's really the biggest difference. And as I said, he's throwing all of his pitches harder, which is also why he's throwing his fastball more. Last year, he was throwing about a fastball and a sinker the same amount. Fastball 29.4%, sinker 29.2%. This year, fastball at 36.3%, sinker at 14.4%. So he's sticking with the straight fastball up in the zone, and then he's using that slider down to, to really get guys out. He also is mixing in a changeup, and he's throwing a curveball a little bit more than ever before. It's still about 5% of the time. It's not often, but he will flip one in there every once in a while, a little more than he did in previous years. Last year, lefties hit 281 against David Peterson, who, again, obviously is a left-handed pitcher. They had a 361 on base percentage, 406 slugging. This year, lefties are hitting 170 against David Peterson, 267 on base, 415 slugging. You go to right-handed batters. Last year, 240 or last year was, yeah, sorry, 246 average, 338 on base, 471 slugging this year, 249, 342, 358. So not much difference on the average and the on-base percentage, but they aren't slugging nearly as much against Peterson as they did last year. Here's the biggest one I found that I thought was interesting. High leverage situations. You know how you pitch to an ERA last year of, let's see what it was exactly, 5.54. Here's how you do that. You struggle in high leverage spots. Last season, batters hit 636 against David Peterson in situations that were deemed high leverage with a 778 on base percentage and a 727 slugging percentage. Quick math says that's what? An OPS of like 1,500? Not going to be a good recipe for success, right? This year, you're looking at a 158 batting average in high leverage spots, 238 on base, 211 slugging. It's remarkable. So he's pitching better with runners on base, and that's why he's been so successful. So you look at David Peterson's season, um, what he's given this Mets team, and you think about the fact that Jacob DeGrom could be coming back. You just wonder what they do here because you look at the rotation this season, you can make a legitimate argument that, if we're going to remove Max Scherzer from the equation because he hasn't been around all year, we're just going to talk about the four guys that have pretty much been there with Carlos Carrasco, Chris Bassett, Tywin Walker, and David Peterson. I can make the argument based on the stats that Tywin Walker and David Peterson have been the best two pitchers in this rotation. But 
when DeGrom comes back, what do you do? Do you go to a six-man rotation to keep Peterson in there? Do you option Peterson to Syracuse? That doesn't seem fair. Do you put him in the bullpen? I don't know what they do. Do you bump Carrasco? <laughs> the Mets got some decisions to make, and those are good decisions to have when we get there, but don't really know. All I know is David Peterson is a completely different pitcher than the guy we saw last year, and you know he looks a little bit close to what we saw in 2020, but that year he's pitching in empty ballparks. It's not the same thing. That's almost not even the major leagues what he faced at the beginning as a rookie. And we saw Andres Jimenez kind of played out of his mind a little bit too. Speaking of Jimenez, he's an all-star. And uh, I wrote an article for Just Baseball about it. Kind of interesting to think about the fact that Jimenez is an all-star this year and Lindor is not. But what I will say, Lindor still has been more valuable based on F4. A little easier to get in as a second baseman in the AL than a shortstop in the NL. But Jimenez had an amazing season. So I just thought I gave him a little shout-out at the end of the podcast today now on tomorrow's show talk about the final game of this series where the Mets stand in this division and I'll preview what lies ahead this weekend as the Mets will take on the Cubs beginning on Thursday for a four-game set my family's out in Chicago my sister lives out there I'm going to be in Chicago for the games on uh Saturday and Sunday the final two games of that series that'll be a lot of fun but anyway that's going to be all for the show today as I said Thank you for listening. Make sure you follow, rate, and review wherever you get your podcast. Make sure you follow me on Twitter at Finkelstein Ryan. Follow the show at Locked On Mets. Thank you for making Locked On Mets your first listen every day. Now for your second listen, check out Locked On MLB. Hosted by Paul Francis Sullivan. Locked On MLB is where you want to go and stay up to date with everything going on in Major League Baseball. Follow Locked On MLB wherever you get podcasts.